Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. They began to speak, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Our centering prayer is connected to our breath, and it's prayed silently. And so on the inhale, we pray, gracious God. And on the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's take a moment to center ourselves. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. Teach us in a way that our lives will be transformed. Bless us and send us out as agents of your resurrection renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good, for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When we lived in San Francisco, there was this, what Florence describes as an art and crafts junkyard called Scrap. It was under the 101 freeway and it looked like an arts and crafts junkyard with an attached warehouse. And it was the kind of place, if you were a creative or you wanted to become one, you could go and you would get all of these different materials, like bolts of linen, which I guess is a technical term, or you know, all sorts of pottery or paints or fabric or yarn. And you kind of put it on the table and then this old European woman would just look at it and size it up and then tell you, $6 for the bunch. And then you'd kind of leave. 
So Florence was walking through. This is the place where she took her cousin, Vidi, who you see at church sometimes here. And when Vidi fir first went with Florence, she thought it was a practical joke. Like, surely we are not going in. This is not your favorite place to get stuff in San Francisco. So one day Florence was going down the aisle, and she found this and just thought it was pretty. Not sure what she would use it for. And she set it on the table with the yarn and the bolts of fabric. And the lady said, $12 for everything. And Florence said, I'm not giving you $12 for all. I'll give you $10 for all that. And the lady said, fine. So for $10, she got all this stuff. Then she goes home, and she looks at the bottom of it, and there's a little name here of the manufacturer that happens to be in England, I believe. And she Googles it and finds out that it's pure silver. She got this for less than $10, and it's worth $6,000. Like, that's antique roadshow stuff right there. It now sits on our piano and holds our family's change. Um, <laughs> but this is an example where you can look at something and not realize its value. And you're in the midst of a little treasure the whole entire time. And oftentimes the Beatitudes are part of the scripture that can play that role in our lives. It's just this kind of one part, Jesus gave this sermon on the mount, there's a bunch of blessed are you when these things happen to you. But it's kind of part of the bigger package. You could take it or leave it. You're not sure what to do with it until you start evaluating, A, who's speaking, the creator of the world. I mean, if anybody knows the true depth of a good life well lived, I think I would start there. And B, how counterintuitive. Like, you don't arrive at these conclusions on your own. We're going to get into that today. But it's critical to see that these beatitudes are not just a list of prerequisites to gain God's favor. We say this every Sunday, so we just drill it into our minds. This is not go and try to make yourself mourn. Go and try to make yourself um, hungry and thirsty. Go and try to make yourself any one of these particular, you know, make yourself poor in spirit. Rather, they're reassurances that when you find yourself mourning, when you find yourself poor in spirit, you've come to the end of your emotional, spiritual, psychological rope, and everyone's telling you just tie a knot and hang on, and you're saying, I don't have any more rope. The world says, it's game over for you. And Jesus says, actually, it's then that you are blessed because you might recognize I'm closer to you than you could ever imagine, and I will never let you go. See? And so what if, what if, the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And that through these beatitudes, it's actually a way that that kingdom of heaven meets and permeates and connects with every fiber of your being and your life, especially in the most sad and despairing and anxious aspects. I was listening to an audio book yesterday by Richard Rohr called The Universal Christ, and he talks about how it's so hard to give individuals hope when the whole thing seems hopeless. And if you're paying attention right now, things seem pretty hopeless. Take your pick of what's going on in this world. And Jesus says in the midst of all of that, there is always hope that is not merely a Hallmark card-style platitude, don't worry, God will use this in your life somehow, but him saying, actually, I'm stepping into human history, and I am with you, and I will see this through. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. So let's take a look at that. Why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness filled? What does that mean? 
And then how do we learn to live into it? First, the why. Why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice is actually a better word there, and we'll get into that, going to be satisfied? Well, the reality is we all hunger and thirst for something. It's not like Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to start hungering and thirsting. That's, that's part of the human condition. The question is, what are you hungering and thirsting for? The question is, what will ultimately satisfy you? There was a study done a long time ago, but there's actually a study done like every three years on will more money, will more affluence, will more success make you happy? And every single person who studies this, whether it's Stanford or Harvard or the Mayo Clinic or whoever, the answer is always no. (laughs) More money will make you happier up to a point beyond the poverty line because if you can't eat, you're not happy. But after you have your basic needs met, more money doesn't make you happier. And yet, and so, you know, one of these says, although the U.S. standard of living has increased since World War II, there's no increase in the number of people who regard themselves as happy. You know, as Puff Daddy said, more money, more problems. U.S. News and World Report on the subject says, once income provides basic needs, it doesn't correlate to happiness, nor does intelligence, prestige, or sunny weather. People grow used to new climates, higher salaries, and better cars. And yet, I did a little research on how many ads does a person see per day, per week, per year, and it's interesting to see the number go, just, I mean, as technology goes like this, it used to be like 200 ads a day, and you go, oh my gosh, I'm getting bombarded. But the latest by a marketing firm called Red Crow, their 2022 analysis, and this seemed to be right on with everything I read, says, you see, I'm just curious. Go ahead and shout out. How many ads do you think you you are exposed to a day? That counts pop-ups on Facebook and Instagram. It counts billboards. It counts walking by a store and seeing an advertisement in the window. It counts what comes up in your news feed. It counts the bus that drives by with two ads on it. How many ads do you think you see a day? Loud and proud. What do we hear? A thousand. All right. A thousand. Do I hear two? Two. Do I hear three? Three, do I hear four? 4,000 a day is on the low end, 10,000 is on the high end. And I think 4,000 is probably if you live in a more rural or suburban environment. If you live in the center city of San Diego, you have ads buzzing around you all the time, or if you spend more time on the computer and you see how all that works. But here's the point. It's not neutral. It works on you. That's why they do it. John Foreman, the lead singer for Switchfoot, um, who is not only a great artist but a great person, uh, lives in San Diego County. I always think it's artists who can be the prophets and they can see something and then talk about it in a way we go, oh, that's absolutely right. John Foreman said, greed, these are the, the seven deadly sins, okay? Greed, envy, sloth, pride, gluttony. These aren't even vices anymore. No, these are marketing tools. Lust is our way of life. Envy is just a nudge towards another sale. Even in our relationships, we consume each other, each of us looking for what we can to get out of the other Our appetites are often satisfied at the expense of those around us. In a dog-eat-dog world, we lose part of our humanity. So are you aware of what you're hungering and thirsting for? It is not neutral. It is driving all sorts of behaviors and trajectory in your life. One writer, Kevin Miller, out of uh, the Chicago area, posted his own version of the Beatitudes according to the marketing that we're experienced to. He says... Blessed are those who fly to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands. 
where they lie in Shea lounge chairs, the only two people on an enormous white beach, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who drink much beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree, football-watching buddies and highly attractive, socially gifted women in their first half of life, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have the latest smartphone, for they shall gaze on a screen swirling with color and shall get all the information they need just when they need it, and they shall be satisfied. By the way, as soon as I got the iPhone 13, the 14 gets announced. Not fair. See, now I'm not happy. You know how that feels. Blessed are the well-connected, because they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. Blessed are movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are the healthy and fit, because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. Blessed are those who have outstanding kids. Verily, I say to you, highly blessed are those who have a golden Labrador retriever bounding along on that slow-motion video day of playing with the kids in the park, for they shall be the envy of real families everywhere and shall be satisfied. See, he pokes fun at it, but it's always bombarding, like nuclear radiation. And we don't even have a radiation suit on. It's just going right through us. Is it possible that you are hungering and thirsting for things, for even good things that won't ultimately satisfy you? Have you ever landed a big contract or closed a big deal or just nailed a big project and the next day you woke up feeling that kind of runner's, that runner's hangover that accompanies the runner's high? And you think, is this, is this it? I thought it would feel different once I got to this level. Or after a night of binge eating or binge drinking, have you ever thought, surely there's more to this? I was talking to a a friend earlier this week, and as a pastor and just with my personality, I have the weirdest, greatest conversations, and this person was considered using some very toxic drugs, and they said, uh, you know, it'll make me feel better, and I said, it will absolutely make you feel better for about 10 minutes, and then there's the nuclear fallout. <laughs> See, it always presents the bait. It hides the hook, whatever it is. If you just get more, if you just achieve more, you strive more. And then there's the hook that pulls you down. And that's what happens whether, with addiction to anything. Power, greed, lust, drugs, alcohol, shopping, you name work. It's the idea of tolerance. You need a greater dose to achieve the same level of high as you go along. And it doesn't stop until you drop. Or after a bad decision. Have you ever just thought, who am I? Like, who am I becoming? We hunger and thirst for all sorts of things that don't fulfill. Re reflect on where you pay attention. Where do your thoughts go when they are free to go anywhere? Where does your money most easily flow? Where do you gravitate towards spending your time? These are all indicators of your hunger and thirst. And Jesus says, blessed are the hungry and thirsty those who can begin to taste a deeper source of identity, those whose thirst can lead them to drink from a deeper well. You see, Jesus isn't trying to deprive you of your appetite. He's trying to get you to see that your appetite was designed to lead you to something much deeper. He's saying, you are much more than the sum of your appetites. Don't believe the lie. I've made you for so much more real satisfaction. Go deeper. Let those appetites drive you 
deeper. Pastoring in the Bay Area meant that we had a number of people in our church who were involved in the wine industry, and we would go to, nothing like going to Napa and not needing to look at the price tag. That's like one of the best joys in the world. But one of the things I'd learned from the vintner is that there are old growth vines that are highly prized because they've been through many dry seasons. For certain species of grape, it's the dry season that makes the roots go down deeper when they're stressed. And because they go down deeper, they get better nutrients, and they're stronger for a longer life and better flavor. Jesus is saying, you're too easily satisfied. Let the roots go down deeper. C.S. Lewis talked about this when he wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. One of the questions Jesus asked often to people who were following him, he'd turn around, look them in the eye and say, what do you really want? How do you answer that question? Now, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And a broad definition would be those who deeply desire for things to be made right. There's a beautiful moment when you can say, in all my frantic rushing, achieving, consuming, and worrying, which is mostly directed toward myself and my own achievement, my own stability. I hope you achieve. I hope you're stable. But it has to go deeper. When you can open it up and say, I deeply desire for this world to be made right. Because that's what the word actually means. The word that we read here is dikaiosune in Greek, which often is softened into a more religious-sounding word, righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It sounds like the thing you want the most is to stop sinning, and that's a blessing, right? Well, yeah, that's a blessing if you want to stop damaging yourself and damaging others. Of course, it's nothing less than that, but it's so much more than that because it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's justice. And justice, if you think about it, even the English translation, it has the same root as if you justify a sentence in your Word doc or Pages doc or Google doc. You're going to justify the writing. How do you want it justified? You want it on the left, you want it on the right, you want it centered. What's it asking? How do you want it to be ordered? How do you want it to line up so it makes sense, so it's beautiful? And when it talks about God's justice, it's a way of talking about God putting all things to rights, to line up the created order in a way in which we thrive in connection with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with the created world. That's God's justice. So justice does fall whenever we get outside of those lines. Yes, because he's bringing it back to order. Some of you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice in yourself. I know you come in here feeling guilty. You see the pastor and the collar, you sanctuary and all that, and you go, hold on, I can't believe I'm in a church right now. If these people only know what I've done, who I am. I have conversations with you where some of you think you've sinned away your day of God's grace, that you've gone too far in some way, and there's no way God could possibly claim you as God's own, and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. And you need to hear Jesus say, I know you, and I see you, and I welcome you. 
Many of you hunger and thirst for justice, not for what you've done, but for what others have done to you. You've been legitimately wrong. You've been actually hurt. And you can't wait for them to get what they deserve. And I hear you. But just consider that holding a grudge has a radioactive effect on your own heart. They're living rent-free in your mind all the time, and they're not even thinking about you. As one mentor used to say to me, if you ever want to be a slave to somebody, hold a grudge against them. But it feels so good, especially when you can replay it in front of a jury of your own peers in your own mind, and everyone agrees with you that you were right and they were wrong. But then it erodes your heart. But you long for it. Let's just hold that. You long for that. Many of us long for justice in this world. We say the world is not right. We're longing for beauty, for flourishing in our city, on our block, in our homes, in our world. Later today, during our time of prayer after communion, we'll be praying against the threat of nuclear war. We will be praying mourning the death of children in Thailand. We see this world and say it is not right and it needs to be made right. We hunger we thirst for it in our school system, in our justice system. Everyone agrees that children should be taken care of. I mean, if you don't agree with that, that's the very unpopular opinion. We just don't know how to care for kids really well. Everyone agrees that being a teacher is a valuable job. We just don't value our teachers enough. You can go to a playground, and it will not be long until you hear a five-year-old say, that's not fair. We all have an innate idea of fairness, justice. We just can't agree about how to do it. And so it's complex. And on one hand, it's easier just to stay away, especially if you have enough resources to pad your own life and just stay away. Or we run this tape in our minds that says, I didn't start it. It's not my fault. And there's probably nothing I can do about it. So I'm just going to distance myself and think about other things. I hear you. It's easier to say, it's not my problem. But I want you to consider Jesus Christ who says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the king is here. And I don't shy away from the pain. And I'm not overwhelmed by the complexity. And in fact, I invest all of my power and authority by laying down my life on behalf of the brokenness of this world. Join me in that. Join me in that. He says to you, I know the pain you live with, and I am present during your deepest hurt and anguish. I'm with you. The world says, these are dead ends. These are droughts of despair, dry seasons. And Jesus says, you are blessed. I am near and you will be filled. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like what the Apostle Paul later reflected on in Romans 8 when he wrote, neither height nor depth nor width nor breadth nor life nor death nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor anything else. What he's saying is all. Rhetorical all. Nothing can stop the love of God of Jesus Christ in your life. What if that's the truest voice that you hear in your particular context? Do you see how that produces a humble confidence, humility and confidence at the same time? A buoyancy and a hope that doesn't turn a blind eye to the pain of this world or the difficulties of your life that faces it head on 
and has hope because God is at work. How do you live this out? How do you actually become this type of person? Well, first of all, you're taking step one. You and I need a story bigger than our own. In the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, while he's in the midst of the crowds, goes up onto the mountain, and those who follow him gather around him, and this is where he gives his teaching. He's leading and healing powerfully. And then he says, Blessed are the broken. Happy are the sad. Powerful are the humbled. Satisfied are the hungry. In the busyness of our lives, we often become trapped, so often in smaller stories, smaller dreams, a less noble vision. And he calls us to a higher standard of living, a higher vision. Neuroscientists talk about how we get trapped in our reptilian brain, our first brain, our limbic system, and it's kind of fight or flight against the world all day long. And he says, lift up your eyes and see the bigger vision of my redemption, my renewal, my presence, my love, my perseverance, my faithfulness in your life and in this world. So the first step of becoming a person Jesus is describing is by catching his vision for the righteous life, the flourishing life, life as it was meant to be. And as we allow our imaginations to consider the kind of world Jesus imagines, our appetite for it grows, and then we become hungry and thirsty for it. You know, this is why we gather here every Sunday, to stretch our imaginations, to remember to hear, to talk about, to taste and see what God is up to in our lives and in the world. I mean, think about it. Where else do people of different ethnicities, cultures, walks of life, socioeconomic status, where do people like this gather around a table to remember that they are hungry and to be fed in the very same moment? Is your vision for what we do here at church that big? I hope it is. I mean, I hope you wake up in the morning and go, I need my imagination stretched today. That's why I'm going to go to church. I need a bigger vision for what this world can look like and the resources to live into it. That's why I'm part of Renew San Diego. That's why we gather around word and sacrament in community for all of these things to take place. So that's the first step, and I said you're already doing it, so that's great. Come back, bring friends as we gather together around this bigger story, this true story of this world. You know, this is actually not the most valuable thing on this table. This is. I mean, that makes for a good story and it holds the change on our piano. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, come to me and I'll feed you. The world says this is the most valuable thing on the table. This will not give you life. You see it, right? It's like wide open right now. You can just see it. As soon as you leave these doors and you go to a mall, this conversation will be way back in your mind unless you process it and keep it forefront. Four to 10,000 ads today, okay? Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I'll give you rest. Imagination expanded, focused together. We do this in community. And then I just want to highlight a few practical things. That's kind of high level, just real practical. Where can you put the needle on the record? Where do you put your hands to start climbing up this beautiful, you know, mountain? And here it is. First of all, it's not a mountain to climb. 
Part of it is to realize that Jesus isn't calling you to come up. Jesus has come down. So he's already closer to you than the air you breathe. Don't try this without the gospel. He's already met you. These are ways of opening up and seeing that he's there. I'll offer you a few that Mark Scandrett offers in his book, The Ninefold Path, the book we're going through in community group. He says, uh, first, own your identity as an agent of justice in this world. Remember, justice in every way. Reordering, rebeautifying, healing this world. Own your identity as an agent of justice in this world. See, that combats the, I didn't start it, not my fault, I can't do anything about it. I have a role to play. I was reading a, a book this week that reminded me something that blew my mind. It's always been there, and I just needed to hear someone say it. There are plenty of places where the Gospels talk about Jesus as the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Those who walk with me will never walk in darkness. John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Side note, scientists are now discovering even in the darkest darkness, there are things called neutrinos that actually contain some aspect of photons. So even in the darkest place in the world, there's light. They're just finding out what Jesus had talked about 2,000 years ago. The light shines in the darkness. Wild. But listen, he said, I'm the light of the world. But in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, a little later he's going to say, you are the light of the world. Let that sink in. The light of the world looks at you and says, you are the light of the world. Own your identity. Own your agency. You have far more agency than you realize, and so do I. It brings us back to how are you using it. And the hungers and thirsts will direct it. You see how it's all connected. First, own your identity. Second, imagine the world as it could be. We're going to do an exercise on Wednesday at Community Group where we can go around and say, let's start the sentence, let's complete the sentence, I want to live in a world where. And we might say things like, children are not exploited in sweatshops to produce garments. I want to live in a world where I'm confident this earth will be inhabitable in a hundred years. Okay? And then the second sentence is, one thing I can do toward this goal is, I can find out where my clothing is sourced. I can choose to drive less or use public transit. You, know, you see how these things are connected. That's how the agency happens. So maybe just start with an exercise today with a friend, with someone who, who you're here with. Call up you know, a loved one. Say, hey, let's do a little exercise. I want to live in a world where one thing I can do toward that goal. And then make small changes. And this is couched with shame and should is not productive. This is not you should do more, okay? Shame and should aren't going to help you. But if you're so moved and compelled, why don't you make some small changes? Father Richard Rohr talks about a friend who decided no advertising. And you realize how much smaller the newspaper would be if it had no ads in it. Uh, you could buy ad blocking software on your computer. You could choose, you know, all of that. That's an example. He had another friend who, when they were wronged for money, they had a policy that they would calculate the amount of money. It's usually pretty easy to calculate. And they would give that much money to charity. So it was a double dipping. But it's a way of just saying the money has no power over me. That, that scares me, okay? Use your influence or your power or your voice on behalf of others to walk alongside with others. This is why um, when George Floyd was murdered in Minnesota our church went and participated in pre peaceful protests and walks around our city. 
He said, we're going to use our agency. We're going to use our voice. We're going to stand together and say, unarmed people should not be murdered in public, and we're not going to take it any longer. This is why when we go down to Mexico, just 15 miles south, Tijuana, borderlands, we don't come in as like the resource church ready to just tell them what we think they should do from America, United States of America. They're Americans too, uh, continentally speaking. And, but we come in and say, we, we want to be part of solidarity, not charity. We want relationship here. We have something to give, but we have a lot to receive, and we're going to do this as a relationship. How, where can you use your voice, your authority, your influence, even if it's just a little bit? I want to close with this. Jesus comes and asks you life-changing questions. But wasn't that what you'd expect from the creator of the world? And the questions are always pointed toward redemption. What are you hungering and thirsting for? What does it look like for you to hunger and thirst for righteousness in this week? And as we say often, because it's true, as you do, your life will be transformed in some grand ways, in some small ways, but it's the trajectory of life that will actually be transformed. So you will be renewed and this world will be renewed. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would meet us in this place. Spirit of grace, lead us, fill us, teach us, move us, motivate us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled and satisfied. May that be true in our lives and in this world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.